John 19, just three verses, verses 29 to 30. But oh boy. Reading verse 28. After this, that is after Jesus provided for the care of His mother, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to finish or fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Now Lord, awaken the dead with Your Word. Open the eyes of the blind. Bring to clarity the confused mind. Cause the believing heart to trust more deeply. Grant Your presence that Your Word may have its intended, powerful, and saving and securing effect. And so we surrender, Holy Spirit, to You for this purpose. Amen. It is finished. These words ring out across the centuries to declare the good news to us today that Christ has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. He's done it. The work of redemption is finished so that there's no more to be done except to receive what He has done by faith and rejoice in Him forever. That's what I want us to consider this morning as we look at this monumental passage. And oh, be amazed, dear friend, at what we see here. So let's, let's notice first that on the cross, Jesus knew His work of redemption was finished. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. After this, Jesus, that focuses our attention back on Him, on the cross. And so we've just seen last week that He's taken care of His mother. He's commended her into John's care. Verse 27, remember the camera zooms, lens sort of zoomed back and we could see those who were standing at the foot of the cross. But now John, the Gospel writer, wants to make sure that we are zoomed back in and our attention falls fully on Christ Himself. Because this is the moment of truth. This is that moment that all creation has been waiting for since Adam's fall. This is that moment when the promise of every sacrifice in the Old Testament will finally be fulfilled. And Jesus knows it. Look at those words again. And Jesus knowing. That's been one of John's themes all along, that the crucifixion and death of Christ are not something that just happened to Him. Right? He wasn't taken by surprise and dragged off against His will and killed. At every point... We've seen that He knew what was coming. That this was the plan. And for the joy set before Him, He embraced it. If you remember back in the upper room, John 13.1, it said that before the feast of the Passover, 
Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew it. When they came to arrest him in John 18.4, it says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knew because he, the Son of Man, had come to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus, knowing that the time had come, one of the questions that we've asked repeatedly through our study of John has been, Who's really in charge here? Is it the soldiers who came out in the night to arrest Jesus, but who fall to the ground when He says, I am? Well, they're not in charge. Is it the Sanhedrin who condemn Him? Or Judas who betrays Him? Or Pilate who hands Him over to be crucified? Are these the ones in charge? And of course the answer is, no. At every step, in every way, it is not them. No one takes his life from him, as he so clearly says in John 10, verse 18, but he lays it down of his own accord. He gives it up for the redemption of his people. Jesus, knowing, or how does John say it here? Jesus, knowing that all was finished. Now, look at that word finish. That's a word you need to know. In fact, it's a word you already do know because you just sang it a few minutes ago. It's that same word, tetelestai, that we'll see again down in verse 30 when Jesus declares, it is finished. But you see already, right now, even before He makes that statement, Jesus knows it is finished. What is finished? Well, look, it says that all is now finished. Um that everything I came to accomplish now stands in a place of completion. Uh, this word, tetelestai, which of course we'll come back to in verse 30, carries an awful lot of weight in this passage. In one form or other, it shows up three times in these three verses. It's, it's based on a Greek verb, teleo, which means uh, to bring something to a successful conclusion, to finish it, to bring it to completion, uh, to, to, to bring it to the place of full accomplishment. And so in this moment, Jesus knows that everything He has set out to do as Savior has now been fully accomplished. Now think of that. Think of that. All the way through John, Jesus has been telling us this is why He came. He came to accomplish the work the Father gave Him to do. And of course that work He has in mind is the work of our redemption. Redemption. Now what does that mean? Redemption means to purchase someone out of bondage. So here is a slave and indebted to some cruel master. He can't escape. Uh, he'll never be free unless someone else steps in and frees him by paying his price, by paying the debt for him. And of course, this is us. We are enslaved to sin. We are bound by our rebellion against God. We are, we are destined, in fact, to pay sin's awful wage, which is death, and suffer hell as the just consequence of our sins. And that's what we will pay unless someone steps in and pays the price necessary to set us free. If that doesn't happen, we are doomed. But that's the work 
that the Father gave the Son to accomplish. And Jesus has been talking about that work that He will accomplish all the way through John. Back in chapter 4, verse 34, He says this is what His very life is all about. John 4, 34, uh, Jesus said to them, My food, my very sustenance is to do the will of Him who sent Me and accomplish, by the way, same word, root tetelestai is from, accomplish, I'll hear, I'm here, this is my sustenance, to do His will, that he, and, and what He sent Me to do was to finish this work. A little later, John 4.34, he says, or John 5.36, he says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, same word, finish, that work is the work that I'm doing. It's why I'm here. And then just hours before the cross, when Jesus is praying to His Father in John 17, verse 4, He says, Father, I've glorified You on earth, having accomplished, having finished the work that You gave Me to do. This is why He came and this is what He is now bringing to a conclusion. That is, by the way, why uh, Colossians 1.14 says, in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Notice that. In Him we have redemption. Not may have, not will have. We do have. Why do we have it? Because the work was accomplished, finished, when Christ died on the cross. So Jesus, knowing that His work was finished, knowing that the goal had been reached, verse 28 says, Jesus knowing it was finished, said to finish the Scriptures, I thirst. So here's the second thing we need to see just before Jesus breathes His last from the cross. Jesus not only knew that the work of redemption was finished, Jesus knew He is about to finish out all the promise of Scripture for us. Look again at what it says. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to finish the Scriptures, I thirst. Now, actually, the ESV says, in order to fulfill. And that's, that's a legitimate translation. Nothing wrong with that translation. But I do want you to look at that word, fulfill. Because it's in a little different form than we would normally expect to find in a place like this. Because it is, it is based on that same word, teleo, from which tetelestai comes from. You see, John has done something quite interesting here, and a little bit unexpected, as I say. This is one of several places in John where we're told Scripture is fulfilled. But usually when he tells us Scripture is fulfilled, he uses the common word by which that would be said, which is the word plerao. It doesn't have to be a Greek lesson, but just it's a different word. But he doesn't use that common word here at all. He uses this rather different word, teleo, which means to finish, to bring something to completion. And you're sitting there and you say, so what? Well, here's the so what. John is clearly making a point here. In every other place in Scripture, when we see that it is fulfilled, we use the word which means just that, to fill up something. But here he uses this word, finished, accomplished, brought to completion. Why does he use this word here? Because it's a statement, it's a declaration that we need to see. He wants us to understand this is not just a fulfillment of Scripture and prophecy among many others, that this signals the fulfillment of Scripture and prophecy in some kind of finality. 
He wants us to see that this is the summing up of every promise and every prophecy of salvation in the person of Jesus on the cross. Now that doesn't mean doesn't mean that there are no more prophecies to be fulfilled after this. In fact, there are going to be more that will take place in John. But what he means is that the completion of Jesus' work on the cross brings to fulfillment all the salvation promises of Scripture. Everything God has promised in the Old Testament concerning our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of our salvation will be brought to completion the moment Jesus breathes His last. This is the center point of all salvation. Everything in the Bible that came before builds up to this moment and everything that comes after will flow from it. The cross is the center point of all salvation history. That's where you shout just a little bit. Because that's what this moment is all about that we're looking at. And in fact, Jesus had even told His disciples that's what this would be about. On the way to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 18, 31-34, He said this, Luke 18:31. He's on the way to Jerusalem. He says to the twelve, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Guess what? Same word. Finished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. After flogging Him, they will kill Him and on the third day He will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what He said. John is making sure that we do grasp what he said. Every prophecy of salvation is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And knowing that, right, seeing that, Jesus cries, I thirst. Now, on one level, that's not surprising. Loss of blood, Sweating, hanging on the cross in the hot Middle Eastern sun, dehydration is certainly going to be an issue. It's, in fact, a well-known part of the torture of the cross. We even caught a glimpse of that last week in Psalm 22.15 uh, where he said, in effect, that my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I am dust. And so it is no surprise on a human level that the Son of Man would cry out here in thirst. In fact, it is a reminder to us that Jesus is fully human. Fully God, yes, but also fully man. And as a man, He suffers thirst. Charles Spurgeon marveled about that when he said, Jesus here was proved to be really a man because He suffered the pains which belong to manhood. Angels cannot suffer thirst. A phantom, as some have called him, could not suffer in this fashion. But Jesus really suffered. Not only the more refined pains of delicate and sensitive minds, but the rougher and commoner pains of flesh and blood. A thirst, but of course it was more than just about physical thirst. For John tells us, remember, that this is indeed the fulfillment and the finishing out of Scripture. So Scripture is being fulfilled here. What Scripture? 
probably Psalm 69, verse 29. Another one of these messianic psalms, at least part of it is. Psalm 69, verse 21 The writer says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And so we look down at verse 29, and Jesus says, I thirst, and we're told, verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. Sour wine. Believe it or not, that was actually the common drink of the day for a lot of, well, mainly poorer people. Uh, this sour wine, the word used here means this, this a, a cheap wine that is in fact nearing its expiration date. Right, It's already in the process of turning to vinegar. But, as appetizing as that sounds, if you water it down a little bit, it didn't make a bad thirst quencher. And remember, in that day, water itself wasn't always safe. And so a little wine, uh, a little vinegar, in that helped to kill the bacteria. So this became the drink of choice for soldiers and day laborers, kind of like energy drinks for teenagers today. That's probably why this jar is sitting there. And John notices that. This is more of that eyewitness language we find sprinkled throughout John's Gospel. John says, in effect, I notice this jar of sour wine sitting there. And when Jesus cries out, I thirst, somebody went and got him some. Now, this is not the drugged wine which Jesus refused Earlier in Mark 15, when he first gets to Golgotha, just as they're crucifying him, there was a, a, a little statue, so they would offer this drugged wine uh, that kind of dulled the senses a little bit. Uh, Mark 15, verse 23 says, They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take that. That wine would have dulled his senses, and so he, he refuses it. Um, he's here to bear our sin and to drink down to the dregs this cup of God's wrath in our place. And so He must have His full mind about Him to bear that suffering for us. But now that moment has passed. And Jesus has something He needs to say. And so He calls for a drink to wet His lips. But notice the poisoned wine, because you take too much, it is a poison like many drugs, the poisoned wine he refuses, but then for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. I love the detailed fulfillment of Scripture we get in places like this. And so the call goes out, I am thirsty. And somebody, maybe one of the soldiers, finds a stick and a sponge. He soaks the sponge in the wine and puts it on the stick and lifts it to his mouth. Now, some have wondered why soldier would do that? Was it somehow to mock Jesus? Or others say, maybe it's an act of unexpected mercy. I mean, maybe the centurion who shortly will look there and say, surely this man was the Son of God. Maybe he did this. We don't know. But John then points something out to us, something that the other Gospel writers don't mention. John notices it wasn't just a stick the soldier used to carry the wine to the lips of Jesus, what is it? He said it was a branch of, of hyssop. That's interesting. Hyssop 
was a desert, still is today, a desert bush that grows throughout that area. Its branches are at most three to four feet in length. A reminder, by the way, that the Roman cross was not this big tall thing we usually see in Hollywood. Many times the feet of the crucified person were barely a foot to a foot and a half off the ground anyway. And so it doesn't take a big giant stick to reach the mouth of Jesus. A, a short three to four foot length would do it quite nicely. But again, why does this detail matter to John? Why does John bother to include this in his gospel so that we're aware of it? Well, as is so often, John once again is pointing out an Old Testament connection. He loves doing that. Hyssop played a part in the Old Testament story, especially with regard to the sacrificial system. For example, it's mentioned both in Leviticus and in Numbers uh, as the branch that was used for the sprinkling of blood in various situations. We just read about it also in Psalm 51, Wash me with hyssop and I shall be clean. But it's especially prominent in Exodus chapter 12, that first Passover celebration. And that's what I think John has in mind here. Remember... It is, in fact, Passover weekend as Jesus is being crucified. So Passover is on their minds. And the blood of that first Passover lamb that God commanded Israel to to use to paint on the doorpost and the lintels of their homes so that He would pass over, that blood is on their minds. And what do you think they used in Exodus to paint the blood on the doorposts and lintels so the wrath of God would pass them by? Do you remember? Well, let me read it for you. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go out and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when He sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter into your house to strike you. And John sees the hyssop and he remembers the blood of the Lamb shed for the salvation of God's people. And surely he sees that and says to himself, Aha! Here is that Lamb! Here is that blood of the new covenant for our sins. In fact, hadn't Jesus just said that hours before at the Last Supper? This is my blood of the new covenant. And in that Last Supper, wasn't it wine anyway that was used to symbolize that saving blood? I mean, how could John miss this? Here is the Lamb of God slain for our sins. His blood applied to the doorpost of our hearts to secure our redemption. And John sees that. And he wants us to see it. And that brings us into this third thing, this last thing in this passage, this triumphant conclusion. When Jesus declares the work of salvation finished for all who trust in Him. Verse 30, When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Two things to hear make you shout no more than that, to make you trust, to give you confidence in the finished work. First of all, Jesus here proclaims the word triumph. 
One word in Greek, you know it, to telestai. Finished. Accomplished. Done and done. And let's be clear. This is no cry of defeat or despair. Amazingly, there are some historically who've tried to frame this statement in that way as if Jesus here sighs out, Oh, I'm finished. I can't take any more. I give up. No! A thousand times. No, this is anything but that. Sorry. This is a cry of triumph. This is a cry of total and complete victory. The work is finished. Redemption is won. It's not a cry of defeat. It is a full-throated shout of victory that echoes down from eternity. It is finished. My work is done. Mission accomplished. In fact, if it's possible, John goes even further than that in the very way that he has written this. And it really does speak volumes. You'll notice that word tetelestai that we just sang. It has a little stutter on the end, on the beginning. Tete. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds here. It's not a place for a language lesson. But in the Greek language, that little stutter at the beginning of many words is a marker of what is called the perfect tense. Whether it's a tete or a dede or a bebe, that, that the little stutter, they would have recognized it the way you recognize an ed at the end of a word as something that tells you something about that word. In this case, it tells you this is the perfect tense. Meaning what? Well, the perfect tense refers to something that stands now completed, bringing continuing results. You had something that was done in the past, and it is now done, and that thing that is now done has a continuing effect in the presence flowing down to us from it. Done in the past with continuing effect in the presence. So try to wrap your mind around this. What Jesus finished back there counts as finished forever up here where we're now living. And so, Christ died for our sins once and for all. One sacrifice for all time. Right? Hebrews 7.27 He didn't need, like those Old Testament priests, to offer sacrifice after sacrifice every day, first for His own sins and then for those of His people, since He did this once for all when He offered Himself up. One sacrifice forever. No more sacrifices needed ever. No continuous mass. No continuous offerings. No continuous priest standing above us to give us uh, salvation by what His hands are bringing. One priest who finished the work, done and done, forever. So once for all time, but also once for all His people. Hebrews 10.14 For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That one sacrifice has accomplished forever the forgiveness of sins for every one of His beloved people, for everyone who will trust in Him for what He's done, for all of His elect, for all of eternity who cling to Him by faith. This word, it is finished, is the ground, dear one, for your security. You ought to run back to it often. You didn't do this. You didn't win this. He did. 
So your security and confidence are found in Him, not you, not your performance, but Him because He has done it. Pastor Skip Ryan makes this comment. He says, When Buddha died, it is reported by tradition that his last words were, Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words were, I have done it. Religion tells us to keep up the work and try to finish it. Go out and do something. Jesus says, receive my finished work. That's why Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation at all because Jesus accomplished it all. By the way, that's another meaning of this word. This word in the song, it says something about the double meaning phrase or it talks about its multifaceted meaning. This word, tetelestai, was also used in the commercial world at the time for the paying off of a debt. So let's say you had this debt you were trying to pay off. And it's this huge sum of money that you owe, like for a mortgage or something like that. The day that you finally pay it off or someone gives you the ability to finally pay it off, you would bring that money, that payment, and they would take the certificate of debt that stood against you and they would write across that certificate, can you guess the word? To Tetelestai. Paid in full. I think Paul must have had this word in mind and specifically that certificate of debt in mind when he wrote Colossians 2. 13 to 15. Listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the certificate of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Triumphing over sin and death and the devil forever for us. That is what Christ is declaring when He says to Telestai. Not victory in spite of the cross, but victory through the cross. Not a partial victory, but a complete victory to which nothing more needs to be added. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Church, we who believe in Christ have a finished salvation. That's what this means. Jesus provides a complete salvation. Listen, He did not die to make you savable. He died to save you. If you are in Christ, He is your substitute. That means He took your place. Not in some general way, hoping maybe that might filter down and reach you, or if not you, someone else. No, He knew who this would reach. He was taking your place and dying your death to provide you with a complete salvation that you now receive with the empty hands of faith. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. 
He was your substitute. He was your sin bearer. He didn't just die to give you an example of a good life. He died as your replacement under death. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then having finished that work, verse 30 says, He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. He rested. Andrew Peterson, I sent out one of his songs in the Rockport News this week, and he has another song called God Rested from that same album. An excellent song. You ought to listen to it. But we see Christ here. He rested His head and released His Spirit. Oh, there is so much we could say here if we had more time. Let me just hit these three things quickly. First, notice Jesus did this. He is in charge of this moment. He determines the moment of His death. Right? John 10.18 No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He is in charge. Second, He rested His head. Now I say it that way because the word used here literally means to recline as if setting your head upon a pillow. In fact, that's how it's used in the New Testament in a number of places. To, to lay your head down to rest as if to go to sleep. Matthew 8, verse 20. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his, rest, lay his head and rest, he said. I mean, what a picture this is. After the violence of the cross, when his work is finished, Jesus lays his head down to rest. I can almost see him in that moment resting it in the lap of his father and receiving his father's well done, my son. Lord. Yes. And with that, third, he yields up his spirit. This word means to hand something over to someone. To take something that you have in your possession and give it over to someone else's keeping. It's the same word, for instance, that is used when the Sadducees hand Jesus over to Pilate. They had him in custody. But they willingly turn him over to Pilate and they do so as a voluntary act. Here Jesus, the Lord and Master of this whole situation, voluntarily places His Spirit, His vital life, into the Father's faithful hands. In Luke 23.56, He says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And He dies. Christ willingly and willfully died for our sins according to the Scripture to pay off our debt to the full and bring us to God. He died to provide us with a complete salvation, not a partial one. It is finished, He said, for all His people. So the only question for you is, are you one of His people? And there's only one way to know the answer to that question. You believe this message. You believe this Gospel. John will later say as the summation of the whole Gospel in John 20.31, all these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Friend, believe that Jesus paid it all 
on the cross, leaving nothing for you to pay, nothing at all, nothing for you to add, and nothing for you to do but trust and follow Him. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord Jesus, help us to see. Help the struggling one even now who keeps thinking in the back of their mind that there is some good thing they must bring to You to win this new relationship, this cleansing, this washing, this new status of being Yours forever. Oh God, let them hear the resounding word, It is finished. Let the one who thinks that perhaps their sin is too much, that they've, they've strayed too often, they've fallen too many times, they've, they've done these horrid things and there's no way to claw their way back, let them rest in this finished work of Christ and say, I need nothing. I have no other plea. I need no other argument that Christ has died for me. God, let the troubled heart turn and rest fully. Let the arrogant who thinks that they are worthy be humbled to see that they are not, that this is what it took, but that it is finished, it is done, it is completed for the one who takes hold of Christ. And oh God, those of us who believe and trust now in Christ, let us never get over it. And let this Word come back to our our own hearts when we face our sins and failures and struggles and we think, is, is it enough? Is what Christ did enough for me? That we would say, it is finished. We would hear Jesus say, it is finished. It is done. Rest in what I have completed. Take up your cross and follow me. Lord, give that grace even now for Your sake. Amen.